The Ghosts of Austerlitz, A Christmas Story, by William Waldorf Astor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Sames. The Ghosts of Austerlitz. A Christmas Story by William Waldorf Astor On the twenty-fifth day of December, in the year of grace, 1890, Captain Blythe, formerly of the Tenth Rifles, sat in his cosy bachelor rooms in Piccadilly, luxuriously idling away the afternoon, partly in reverie of things past, partly in the pursuit of that volume of Thiers' fascinating history of the campaigns of the great Napoleon, which bears the suggestive title, Austerlitz. He had pictured the armies confronting one another, the sunrise over the misty snowfields, the storming of the heights of Pratzen, diluting the martial story once or twice, with milder reminiscences of his own campaignings in the Crimea and in Zululand, and had finally checked the French pursuit of the Allies for a comfortable anticipation of the Turkey and Champagne to come by and by. And thinking of the Christmas dinners that would that day be eaten in London, he asked himself who should speak so eloquently of the things that grace the season and link themselves with the memory of bygone Christmas days. The bright lights and happy voices, the full stockings and trinket-laden trees, the sleek congregations, the smoking joints and rare old fruity vintages, as that starving poet whom after twenty years he had met at the church door, and whom he had bidden to dine that evening. Fine material, that, he mused, with a glance at the holly wreath hanging in the window, to kindle a poet's fancy with cheerful suggestions of this frosty season, placed midway between the decline of autumn and that flowery spring with whose promise one seeks to wreathe the future. And settling himself at ease before the fire, he thought of his schoolmates trooping fifty years ago across the hayfields, of the honours he took at sixteen, of that ill-fated courtship at twenty. Oh, shame upon the faithless Arabella! Of his poverty-stricken battle with the world, of journeyings and camp-scenes in far countries, of that assegai thrust at a lundi, and of the murderous look on the face of that Zulu as he fell shot through the head. The captain was a sentimental man, despite all the hard knocks of life, and was wont to comfort himself with the reflection that every momentous experience adds a string to the lute, from the high note of success to the base of sorrow, so that the accords of our nature should grow fuller and richer, if softer, with time. It was pleasanter to remember Arabella years ago, as the slip of a girl she was the night of that midsummer moonlight walk, 
than as the stately matron she had grown, surrounded by her rich and obedient husband and her half-dozen more or less unruly offspring. The clock struck four, and lights were brought. In the next house a German Fräulein was lustily singing De Ilkonig, and Captain Blythe could faintly distinguish the weird sweet ballad of the knightly and romantic Rhine, of the haunted ride amid storm and darkness, of the irresistibly persuasive goblin and his fairy daughters. Yet as the words, Erlkonig hat mir ein Leid gethen, rippled away, he stirred the fire and pooh-poohed the song and growled that none but a German would have dreamt such nonsense as this of a boy lured to death in the land of spirits through his own imagination, while bodily clasped in his father's arms. He walked to the window and peered through the wintry twilight upon the noiseless passers. The contrast which a bleak evening and flickering gas-lamps and such indistinct forms presented to his blazing fireside usually offered a comforting suggestion, but on this particular day the figures flitted hither and thither with more serious meaning. Some were, perhaps, returning to cheerless homes, a few to carry the burden of a secret sorrow into the midst of the carefree. This or that one, to watch this Christmas night, beside a bed of illness. Bah! Little concern it was of his whither they went, or what their errands. He resumed his book, and finished the tragic story of the carnage and rout of the Russian and Austrian troops, until, in the quiet of that long afternoon, his eyes closed for the forty winks an elderly gentleman may allow himself before dinner. He had been asleep but a moment, when, in the first impression of what rapidly became a vivid dream, a cold hand closed roughly upon his wrist, and to his bewilderment he found himself in the grasp of a Cossack soldier, one of the very horsemen about whom he had been reading and it seemed to him that they walked by night across the snowfields of Austerlitz, passing between great frosted poplars with glimmering campfires in the distance and the stars shining in transcendent splendour overhead. "'Where are you taking me?' he gasped in such scanty Russian as he had picked up at Sebastopol. "'To the Tsar,' was the curt answer. "'He has need of you.' "'To the Tsar!' "'In dressing-gown and slippers? "'His Majesty is too busy to notice. "'But I shall freeze to death.' "'To this objection the Russian vouchsafed only a muttered word "'that resembled the snarl of a dog not to be trifled with. "'And looking more closely at his companion, "'Captain Blythe was startled to discover "'that it was Arabella's husband disguised as a Cossack but with an eyeglass in the right eye, and one hand chinking the sovereigns in his trousers' pocket, as in life. They walked, it seemed, for an hour, coming frequently upon vedettes and other tokens of the presence 
of a vast army. Once they nearly stumbled over the body of a dead Russian soldier with a bullet through his brain, just where the captain had shot the Zulu and bearing in the darkness an astonishing resemblance to the black and distorted features of that ill-favoured savage. Farther on they passed the village church, which would be fired and stormed on the following morning, and whose graveyard would be strewn with Austrian dead. But now, in the silent and luminous starlight, and beneath the solemn snow-flecked trees, the headstones and crosses stood out like the sails of a fleet of phantom galleys, frozen to a motionless repose. A distant noise behind them caught the ear, and he and his guide instinctively turned to listen. It was the tumultuous shouting of many voices a mile away, and with the faint sound, as it moved from one side of the French camp to the other, went a sparkle of torches. Captain Blythe knew that it was the frenzied acclamation of the French soldiers to their emperor as he made his famous visit to their bivouacs on the night before his greatest victory. An acclamation that, to this day, rings in the ear of whoever reads the story of Austerlitz. The thrilling vibration smote the air like the defiance of a nation, and seemed as prophetic of victory as the jubilant clamour of Gideon. It sounded human, yet savouring the roar of some ferocious animal, and amid the cheers of an army glorifying in its strength could be heard that exultant greeting, Vive le Empereur! Vive le Empereur! The clock on the mantel struck six, and the sound reached the sleeper indistinctly, like distant land-bells heard at sea and instantly their reverberation wove itself into his dream in a rhythmical cadence of the bells of the chapel they had left behind. Softly from afar it came, with posy of incantation, that ringing melody whose voice awakes our happiest and our saddest memories. Its pealing was filled with harmonies of surpassing intensity, like the whisper of breaking waves, all the gladness of youth, all the ecstasy of love, rang in the old man's soul through the music of those faint, far-sounding bells, until, with the mystery of an unutterable meaning, their ringing faltered and was heard no more. Captain Blythe and the Cossack resumed their walk and dawn appeared as they sighted the Allied headquarters. Already the Austrian and Russian camps were astir with drumbeat and bugle-blast, and these revelés, sounding in a confused medley, impressed the captain with their droll resemblance to dogs barking at daybreak to one another. A moment later he stood in the presence of the Tsar Alexander, and of the Emperor Francis of Austria. Both were seated at a camp-table, one side of which was covered with a map, whereon the Tsar's eyes frequently rested, while upon the other had been spread a frugal breakfast of coffee, biscuit, 
and ham and eggs, to which the Austrian was applying himself. From a crackling fire of green logs without rose a cloud of aromatic smoke, and before it meant two liveried moujiks trying to coax forth a brighter blaze. The Tsar was a man of fine presence, with florid face, clear grey eyes, thin sandy hair, and salient cheekbones, which gave an appearance of force to his countenance. He wore a tight green dress-coat with orglets, white buckskin breeches, and long polished boots with silver spurs. Upon his shoulders was a mantle, and his cocked hat lay on a chair nearby. The Austrian emperor looked equally splendid in a white dress-coat with gold collar and tight breeches and boots, and he also, while sipping his coffee, held a cloak about him. His intellectual feebleness was apparent as he asked in guttural German, Are my officers their queues properly powdered this morning? But before Blythe could declare his ignorance upon this particular, the Tsar addressed him in excellent French with quick, incisive utterance. I have sent for you, Monsieur le Capitaine, because you know this field of battle. You have read Thiers' Histoire du Consulat et de l'Empire, which is more than I have been able to do. You have studied the course the action took eighty-five years ago, and should be able to guard us against a repetition of our blunders. It is not paying you an extravagant compliment to say that you are worth more to me than any of my generals, and that I hold you responsible for Austerlitz. Ach, Hilger Maria, murmured Kaiser Franz, raising his hand to his thick lips. Verily, these eggs are hot. At the words responsible for Austerlitz, Captain Blythe, realized the weird nature of his position. He understood as never before that in principle the sleeping intelligence is responsible. For who shall say that the mind which consents to willful wrong, albeit in the fiction of a dream, sustains no moral blemish? He perceived that the dreamland to which he had passed was a reality and felt himself under the control of a ghostly influence he could neither shake off nor resist. He was conscious that the scene before him was no more an hallucination than any of the seeming realities of life which vanish at a touch or fade like melting dreams, and for the moment he was appalled at the thought of what might befall him in a trance where the actual pressed so closely upon the visionary, and where the sleeper was answerable to forces and figures apparently as real as himself. He would fain have declined the weighty honour thrust upon him, but the watchful Cossack whispered, "'Tush, fool! Think you to bandy reasons with a Tsar?' Thus tersely admonished Captain Blythe, made desperate efforts to recall the details of the narrative he had so lately read, to fix the blunders of the fateful battle, the confusion of conflicting orders, the loss of the heights of Pratzen, 
the catastrophe on the frozen lakes. In the midst of this mental struggle, the Tsar buckled on his sword and rode away to where his generals waited, and poor Blythe was left to the maunderings of the Austrian emperor about his pretty battalions, with their immaculate coats rendered yellow by exposure. What would the Viennese say if they could see them now? Would they laugh or swear? The steady tramp of marching troops was heard, and the blare of drums and trumpets drew near. The captain beheld a regiment of Austrian Kaiserlichs thronging to the front, with great brass-plated conical shakos and close-fitting coats and skin-tight trousers that gave them a wasp-like appearance. At their head went a band that filled the air with passionate refrains, stirring the heart with fire of brave deeds. In his sleep the old man's pulse kindled rapturously, and his face flushed with joy, for the proud air seemed a familiar strain he had sought all his life. To find it at last in the enchantment of a dream? Past him they went, the horns, the cornets, the fifes, the drums, the clashing cymbals, their music filled with martial triumph and touched with the thrilling sweetness of Tyrolean echoes, till as the march died in the distance there arose a babel of commands. Austrian troops speaking German to Hungarian troops, cavalry shouting in Polish to Croat infantry, Italians, Bohemians, Galatians, Iranians, side by side, each using their native dialect, to which Russian officers galloping about added the bewilderment of a language intelligible to few but themselves. Before him extended a marvellous panorama. Immediately in front rose the heights of Pratzen, covered with cannon and infantry. To the right and left stretched long lines of troops, the green Russian uniforms contrasting with the Austrian white. Farther away were Hungarian hussars in dolmens and kolbaks and braided breeches suggestive of fancy dress, and behind them followed the ubiquitous Cossacks, with their shaggy horses and long lances. In the wintry stillness of the Moravian fields, between the assembled armies, rose straight lines of poplars standing like sentinels between the gathering hosts, and above them came the flush of day and the radiant splendour of the sun of Austerlitz. The smoke of an expiring campfire floated lazily across the turquoise-tinted sky, and the snow-crested hilltops glistened as though touched by an aureole. All sounds were hushed now, and a marvellous quiet prevailed, that to the dreamer was intensified by the thought of the storm about to burst. The instant seemed to him one of unspeakable repose, as though the calm of nature, like a perfect benediction, had overspread and silenced the passions of man. The sunrise was one of more than earthly beauty, with such effusions of transcendent beams, 
such opalescent hues across the heavens that the captain in his bewilderment, with thoughts of Christmas still fresh in his mind, fancied something of the mystical light of Bethlehem must lie behind that brilliant orient, to touch the earth with such incomparable glory. The Tsar was gesticulating excitedly to his generals, and the Austrian emperor had finished his ham and eggs. When, from the mist in the ravine beneath Pratzen, emerged the French infantry and artillery, with glittering squadrons on the flanks, as the fusillade commenced, the Tsar motioned Captain Blythe to him. You perceive, he said, the solemnity of this hour. Every form you behold is a spectre, the semblance of its former self. The fates granted that, when the last of those who fought at Austerlitz had died, the field should be fought over by their ghosts, the last of them, a Russian drummer, aged fifteen in December 1805, joined us this morning. All now are here. The men, the vivandiers, the horses, even the dogs with their little wagons that draw the big drums in the Austrian bands. For sixty-five years I have watched them gather. And you, who live on earth, and have the anguish to see your loved ones taken from you, know not the joy that spirits feel, as, in our place of waiting, our comrades reappear and greet us as of old. And as he spoke, Blythe noticed hundreds of great birds, crows and vultures they seemed, flying at a distance, and wondered if these two were spectres. Then the Tsar touched him on the shoulder, and added, Remember your duty. Follow near, and keep me from the faults and failures of the flesh. The battle had commenced, and the first mistake of 1805 had already repeated itself with a strange fatality. Through a misunderstanding of orders, a division of Russian cavalry had taken position on the heights of Pratzen, thus causing a delay in the advance of the second infantry line. It seemed as though the force of destiny could make itself felt even in the land of dreams. The Tsar turned upon Blythe with a reproachful look. Could not you, he cried, have saved us the repetition of that folly? The French advanced rapidly, and at sight of his battalions recoiling before their impetuous onset, the Tsar's face darkened under a sinister presentment. Nevertheless, Miloradovich, who commanded the Allied centre, exposed himself with daring courage at the front of the division bearing his name, while approaching from behind could be seen the Russian guard, which, by a further repetition of error, had been stationed too far to the rear to be immediately available. At its head rode the Cusair lifeguards, the elite of the Muscovite army, resplendent in steel and brass, with floating plumes and long straight swords. This corps instantly fell upon one of Van Damme's regiments, which it crushed before the very eyes of Napoleon. 
capturing its faded and tattered tricolor flag, the emblem of the conquering revolution. This its captor carried back to the two emperors with personal triumph undiminished by a bayonet gush through his face, from which the blood trickled slowly down upon the sparkling decoration at his breast. Captain Blythe looked on with breathless interest, for never had he beheld so splendid an onset, and moreover he vaguely remembered reading years ago, it seemed, in tears' pages, of this charge and capture of a flag. The Tsar smiled and spoke to the wounded officer, and the Austrian emperor, with a sour grimace, remarked like the philosopher he was, What shabby standards these Frenchmen bear! The battle had become engaged as far as the eye could reach, and as the fire grew hotter, and the cannon-balls whizzed through the air, or ploughed the ground, Blythe wondered that none of their group of brilliant staff officers had been struck. But now, simultaneously, with the sharp crackling of the fire in his room, a violent explosion rent the air, and an Austrian general nearby fell from his horse face downwards. The Tsar beckoned Captain Blythe to his side. "'You are mismanaging this!' he exclaimed. These occurrences are merely a renewal of what happened, and if you do not have a care, the result will be no better. Already, I see, you have allowed Buxhoverden on the left, yonder, to mire his troops on ground tears must have told you proved untraversable. Look for yourself and see that his artillery is embedded to the axles. The Englishman saw indeed not only that the Allied left was upon dangerous ground, but that a portion of the French centre, wheeling to the right, was marching to strike it in flank. Swiftly he beheld the dire catastrophe that followed. The Russian infantry shattered and driven upon the frozen lakes, the storm of cannonballs that rent the ice, struggling and drowning soldiers, the abandonment of artillery, the flights of the survivors. And now the Allied centre, violently assailed by Soult, gave way. The Austrian soldiers, casting aside their heavy muskets and brass-plated charcoals, fled, bareheaded and weaponless. Whole batteries of curiously fashioned cannon that had been drawn from Moscow a thousand miles were deserted. Half a dozen of the gaudy flags of both armies, emblazoned with ravenous open-mouthed eagles, lay on the ground in apt token of the woeful fall of those imperial birds, while about them were dead or wounded soldiers, the Austrians in their white blood-stained coats, presenting a ghastly appearance. Captain Blythe was recalled from the fugitives by a menacing gesture. It was the Tsar, his broad face flushed with anger, his lips trembling as though with muttered imprecations. He motioned to some of his infantry, who lingered and pointed fiercely at the Englishman, and in that gesture was a sentence of death. Half a dozen men formed in line, and the Cossack, 
whose features were those of Arabella's husband, charged now with satanic malignity, gave the word of command. Captain Blythe felt that he was not dreaming. He had drifted from dreamland into the realm of spirits, about to become, for him, the realm of death. The scene before him and the events that he had witnessed were not visionary. There was the sun in the sky, and yonder the leafless December branches. He stamped on the snow, and the crisp crystal grains flew from under his foot. The inanimate objects as well as the men before him were as real as himself. He watched the motions of the soldiers with the resignation of a brave man. Every detail of their equipment was distinct, their dingy uniforms frayed after two months' campaigning, their leather shakos with long pompons, their clumsy flintlocks and iron bayonets of a previous reign. He heard the brief order, saw the men tear the paper cartridges with their teeth and ram them home. Then followed the click of the ramrods striking upon the bullets that were to tear his body. In that supreme instant, he had neither heroic thoughts nor useless regrets. It merely seemed infinitely sad to fancy this beautiful earth without him, this earth where, in the focus of his own small sphere, he seemed to have filled so important a place, yet whence his removal would not even be noticed. His heart throbbed violently. Ready! Aim! The flintlocks glittered in the sun. There was a loud report. His heart quivered and stood still. And Captain Blythe lay dying in his armchair before his Christmas fireside. The door had been opened by a valet, who came to remind him of the hour. Dinner would be served at seven, and it was time to dress. The words faltered on his lips as he perceived that his master was unconscious. In a few moments a physician had been summoned, and soon after arrived the poet, who had been bidden to his friend's Christmas dinner and who seated himself at the side of what was to prove Captain Blythe's deathbed. For an hour the sufferer remained speechless, and when at last his lips moved his words were so strange that those about him listened in silent wonder to the reiteration. Responsible for Austerlitz, and shot to death! nor could he be wholly recalled from the phantom land to which he believed that he had wandered, and where he declared he had met his fate. With slow and difficult utterance, as at times sank to a whisper, he told the story of his ghostly adventure. "'But, my dear fellow,' said the poet soothingly, observing that the extraordinary recital agitated him, you are safe in your own room, which you have not left for an instant. Not left in body, replied the dying man. But in spirit I have been far from here, and those I met have done me a mortal hurt. Believe me, the song of the Erlkonig 
is founded upon a truth, and the boy's life was charmed from him as he listened. The doctor applied restoratives and watched attentively. It is an amnurism of the heart, he mused within himself. Then the ill man turned, as if with faculties supernaturally keen, he had divined the thought. No, he ejaculated, it is the Russian bullets, and nothing could dispel this weird hallucination. He believed that at the cost of life he had touched one of the secrets of occult science, and until final unconsciousness his mind was persistently running upon the ghostly born into which he had strayed, and whither his spirit was about to return. But his vision gradually assumed a softer aspect, and from the words he muttered it appeared that the scene before him had changed to one of matchless beauty, where stretched a winding river with sunlit castles and vineyards, rich with the radiance of a transfigured morning, and beside him the elf-king whispered words of irresistible persuasion, sweet as the song of birds at break of day, and the elf-king's phantom daughters beckoned from the night of earth towards the shining river. And when his last breath had passed, the poet, bending at the bedside, was so possessed by the mystery of his fate that he thought of the friend whose cold hand he still clasped, as of one who had fallen a victim to the spectres upon whose domain he had unwittingly trespassed. The End of The Ghosts of Austerlitz A Christmas Story Recording by Andy Sames <laughs>